another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. As always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If you haven't been by there, you ought to go by there and check out our bookstore. We're going to be referencing a number of different books today, and most of these can be found in our bookstore for purchase, and we offer them at the cheapest prices available anywhere on the internet. So uh, help support us, help us as we're trying to, to grow our website and our podcast. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, be sure to do that. You can find it on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, and hopefully some other sources in the near future. As we mentioned last week, today we're going to have a a book discussion of Love Your God With All Your Mind, written by J.P. Moreland. We're going to do kind of a book review as we do from time to time on this program. I'll tell you a little bit about this book. It's recommended to me by Brother Brad Shockley, who's a preacher over in Buffalo, Missouri. Uh, Brother Brad's a, a great Bible student, and we talk books every once in a while. He's given me some really good recommendations, and this is one he recommended recommended about uh, three years or so ago. And since that time, I have now read it three times. That's probably the most I've ever read a single uh, religious book all the way through. I've taken a couple different groups of people through it, as well as reading it on my own. Um, it has also two editions, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. What we are reviewing today is the second edition of the book. On a reading level, I would describe this probably being like a 6 or a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. It's not a super easy read in some regards, but it is a necessary read. It's a provocative read, and he's written at a level of about a 6 or 7 on purpose to teach you to do the work as you're going through the book. And we'll talk more about that in a moment as well. I want to highly recommend this book to college students and young professionals especially, as well as parents, uh, congregational teachers, uh, grandparents. This is a really important book. I start out with college and young professionals because right now, if you're a college student, you are learning how to do work that maybe you don't necessarily enjoy to do. Uh, Your college courses require you to take classes that you don't have a lot of interest in, and yet you're still going to have to do the work in order to get passing grades so you can take the classes that do appeal to you and that have something to do with your background and degree. And that's kind of how it is when it comes to Bible study. There are It is work to study the Bible. There are portions of the Bible that you may enjoy reading and studying. There's portions you don't enjoy reading and studying. Uh, there are tools that are necessary to develop and skills in order to be able to properly handle the Word of God, and it takes work. And because it takes work and because it's not as interesting as some other things in life, then people don't do the work necessary to develop the tools and skills necessary to understand the Bible. And so as a young professional, this book is challenging you to think critically about the Bible and apply yourself in biblical studies in the same way you're applying yourself in studies at college. Uh, to young professionals, you are working in a field right now, and you are using and developing the skill set that you achieved in college. And you need to develop the same type of mentality when approaching the Bible. We need to encourage one another in our teaching at a congregational level 
to develop the tools necessary to do deep study of God's Word, and we need to provoke one another to to that end. And that's part of what this book is is doing. That's the main thrust of the book. Really, the purpose, if I would give a single theme to this book, the purpose of the book is to, to provoke people to develop an intellectual life in religious matters for the glory of God. And as it attacks that theme, it does so by addressing four different areas. The first area discusses why the mind matters in Christianity. The second area focuses how to develop a mature Christian mind. The third area is what a mature Christian mind looks like. And then number four, uh, guaranteeing a future for the Christian mind. So it takes those four focuses and it breaks down all the chapters into those four categories. Okay, let's talk about the two different editions of the book. Again, I said we were discussing the second edition as opposed to the first edition of there's a difference between the two books in that the first edition, chapters 7, 8, and 9, are totally different from chapters 7, 8, and 9 in the second edition. Why he decided to leave out chapters 7, 8, and 9 from the first edition and replace them with three other chapters in the second edition, I don't really understand that or know why. I feel like there is helpful material in the first edition, chapter 7, 8, and 9, and in my opinion, he should have just added three chapters on top of it, but maybe he had some regulation from his publisher or whatnot. Anyway, I do believe it's worth owning both editions of the book. Uh, the first edition, chapter 7, deals with apologetic reasoning in the Christian mind. Chapter 8 deals with worship, fellowship, and the Christian mind. And chapter 9 deals with vocation and an integrated Christian worldview. Those three chapters have been replaced in the second edition by the question of God, part one, the question of God, part two, and the evidence for Jesus. Um, I like, again, the material that's provided in the first edition. I think some of it's actually better than chapter seven and eight in the second edition. It's talking about the question of God, part one and two. But the, the evidence for Jesus in chapter 9 that was not in the first edition is pure gold. In my opinion, the best chapter in the entire book. And so for that reason, I recommend people uh, the second edition, but you should purchase the first edition as well. And again, we'll be discussing the second edition as we go through. What I'm going to do today is a little bit different than how I've done uh, book reviews in the past. I'm not going to do a chapter-by-chapter chapter analysis, but Rather, I'm going to do a pros and cons view of the content in the book. Every book, no matter what book you pick up and read, and we've talked about this quite a bit before, it has good parts and bad parts. It has pros and cons. And you want a book that the pros outweigh the cons. I definitely think that that is the case with this book. That's why I recommend it. But it does have some hang-ups along the way. And so we want to point those out to our readers to give them a, a safety net background encourage them to have their eyes open and looking for certain things as they read through the material. And we're going to start out with a positive, though. and We'll deal with the pros that's going on. One of the pros, I think, and this is just kind of a general assessment of the book, as he is challenging you to develop your intellectual life for the glory of God, he's writing in such a way that forces you to think in an intellectual manner while learning to think intellectually. I think that's really important. Uh, he could have dumbed this book down and written it on, you know, a, a three or four number on the scale of one to ten. But he wrote on a six or seven for the sake of challenging you to do the work that's necessary to do as you're learning to develop your intellectual mind. And I, I think it's really handy in that regard. Again, as you read this, 
It's going to be challenging in some areas. Uh, chapter 3 is a discussion of the mind, soul, and spirit. That's a very difficult read, and I would recommend to people that if you get discouraged in Chapter 3, don't worry, just skip over it and go on to Chapter 4. Chapter 1 is really good, I feel. Chapter 2 is a little bit of a mixed bag, but Chapter 3 is pretty dry and difficult to get through. And If, if you get discouraged in Chapter 3, just skip over it, go to Chapter 4, and you'll be all right. Okay, some specific things that he is really helpful on and why I like this book is, number one, he is death on the social gospel. Uh, he really comes down hard on people using gimmicks and tricks and appealing to people's desires and emotionals and felt needs. He is really good at, at just dismantling that whole concept that is so prevalent in quote-unquote Christianity today. Uh, he comes down hard on the concept of the numbers game. The, the religious world is all about numbers, the number of converts, and to do that, they have to dumb down the gospel and make it anti-intellectual to appeal to people's emotions and felt needs. We'll talk more about that as we go along, but he is death on the social gospel, and I wish our folks would pick up on that and read and understand the problems that come with the social gospel from someone who has been involved with the social gospel to see where it leads and the problems of it to realize we don't need that, we don't want that, we have something far better in the gospel and we need to get in and dig into the gospel to unleash some of the power that is there. And number two, he is he shows the problems that have come along with the faith-only salvation mentality. Uh, our religious world the prevalent concept of salvation is that you just pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches, first of all. You can look all through the Bible and you will never find the sinner's prayer in Scripture. It is not a faith-only type of salvation. What faith-only salvation does is it it breeds anti-intellectualism. In other words, there's no need to study your Bible to become a disciple of Christ. There's no need to obey everything that God said. All you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer, and once you've done that, you will for always be saved. It's a dumbing down of the gospel. If, if all we need is a sinner's prayer and that all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then why write the whole rest of the New Testament? Why not just give us those two little facts and be done with it? And that's essentially what the religious world is doing today. They're just giving those two facts, and they're done with it. They're not going on to teach the fullness of the gospel. It's interesting. There's a book I was, I was pointed to this week. I'm in the process of reading it so far, so good. It's called The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. Again, that's The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. And Scott McKnight is an evangelical preacher. Uh, I wouldn't agree with him on a number of things, including Calvinism. But what he's doing, essentially, is he is bashing on his evangelical folks, for dumbing down the gospel to just be a Lord, uh, calling on the Lord type of salvation and denying the concept of discipleship and the requirements of obedience and a faith that works, as the Bible t talks about in James 2. And so from that aspect, it's really interesting to see Scott McKnight attack that whole mentality and demand discipleship out of people. That is where faith-only salvation in the sinner's prayer leads. And uh, Moreland is really coming down on that in this book. Number three, Moreland attacks the concept of a blind faith. Uh, this is what happens when a Mormon comes to your door and they knock on the door and you start asking them about evidence for the Nephites and the Lamanites and the 
Reformed Egyptian language that the Book of Mormon was supposedly written in, and where's the manuscript evidence for Joseph Smith that he saw these golden tablets? How do we know there were golden tablets? We talk about that whenever we're, we're getting down on the Mormons, but a lot of times when it comes to our own faith, our own expression of faith, we have a blind faith. We don't have faith that is based on evidence. We don't have faith that is based on the proof of God's Word. And he's really, Moreland comes down on that concept of a blind faith, and he's challenging people to do the work necessary to uncover the evidence, to have a solid, rooted faith based on evidence, not on felt uh, feelings or emotions. Uh, next, he, he attacks the concept of felt needs whenever it comes to preaching or to evangelism. The, the common concept in evangelism in the religious world is find out what the people want, uh, find out what they think they need, and give it to them. And that's really not the concept of the gospel at all. In the gospel, as Paul and the apostles went forth, they went forth preaching the gospel. And people needed the gospel, and they, they provoked people with the gospel. And we need to be reminded of that. He does a really good job of kind of rattling the cage, waking people up, and showing them the necessity of preaching the gospel rather than to preaching to felt needs. I think that's a easy and a dangerous trap to fall into. Uh, next, number five, he attacks the concept of scientism. Uh, our world is filled with people who believe that science is all based on facts, science has all of the answers, and religion has a blind faith. And what he shows is that scientism actually is based on blind faith. And scientism doesn't provide all the answers. Science is good when it's dealing with evidence and presenting evidence, but it makes a lot of, a lot of assumptions uh, that are unprovable and are based on a blind faith type of a concept. And scientism cannot produce all the answers. Uh, the Bible and theology can, is the only source that can provide answers to major concepts such as where did we come from, how do we get here, what, where are we going in life. And number six, uh, he attacks the, the modern concept of tolerance. And he shows that the modern concept of tolerance is really a rejection of logical approach to life. We live in a postmodern society. If you're not familiar with that term, he introduces you to the concept of postmodernism and relativism. That postmodernism is essentially saying that nothing is absolutely right or wrong. There's what works for you versus what works for me. You shouldn't force your beliefs upon me. And in fact, the only thing that should not be tolerated is intolerance. We should be able to put up with everything. And really, intolerance today doesn't mean just uh, putting up with things or allowing things to coexist. It means that you should uh, defend and buy into all different conflicting illogical concepts. Uh, he's really good at defeating the concept, the modern concept of tolerance and postmodernism and relativism. Number six, he attacks the individualistic infantile, narcissistic, passive, sensate, busy lifestyle that is eating up our society and even the church. Everybody's concerned about their wants, about their needs, about their infantile mindset. They are narcissistic in nature. That's, that's coming up over and over again. They're passive. They'll allow anything to go on as long as they aren't uh, as long as their needs and feelings are being met. They're busy, 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 following after whatever makes them feel good, whatever uh, motivates them, and they have no concept of a regulated, self-disciplined life. It's all about me and my and my wants. Does a great job 
of really hammering those type of issues, material that we really need to hear uh, both as a society and in the church. Number eight, he attacks the need for self-discipline. We're living in a, a society, again, this goes kind of with point number seven, we're living in a society where it's all about what I want, and we, we don't have the concept of disciplining ourselves, especially intellectually, and that's what he's focusing on. I, I hear from people all the time, they say, you know, uh, man, I, I tried to read this book, but that's difficult, or I fell asleep in it. I, I, I just can't read. I'm not a reader. And what they're saying to me, essentially, is reading takes work. That's true. Reading takes work. Teach yourself some self-discipline. Learn to read. You can learn to like to read. You can learn to do the work necessary to understand the Bible and to develop your intellectual, spiritual mind for the glory of God, just like you learned to develop your mind for whatever vocation you have in life. Number nine, he attacks the concept of emotionalism versus, versus intellectualism. And he in doing that, he gives you an introduction to the concept of logic. And as you go through his, his introduction to logic, that may seem a bit overwhelming because we don't talk about logic much anymore. Whenever you see the news being presented, it's not necessarily building a case based on logic. It's appealing to people's emotions and felt needs. And whenever you see political discussions or religious discussions, most of the discussion anymore has nothing to do with logic but with emotionalism. And people are trying to make emotional arguments and, and, and are using um, both illogical and harmful tactics to try to manipulate people rather than trying to seek truth and follow truth wherever it leads them. And so though his introduction to logic may seem a bit dry and difficult to go through, I think it's really important that we get back to stressing some of that. Uh, whenever we talk about logic and the use of logic in understanding the Bible, that's called hermeneutics, the principles of understanding biblical interpretation. There's a couple of really good books on that. You can pick pick them up in our bookstore. One of them is simply called Hermeneutics by D.R. Dungan. I think that's a really, really helpful book that presents some of your basic principles of how to in interpret the Bible and understand it. And then lastly, and this is really my favorite section of the whole book. In chapter 9, he deals with the evidence for Jesus, specifically historical evidence, and he's arguing about how to present Christ to someone who doesn't believe in the Bible and showing the historical evidence for Christ and the Bible that blows out of the water any evidence we have for any other historical thing. Uh, it's really uh, super, super good. It's just a gold mine of information. The single best concise introduction to that topic that I have read anywhere bar none. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll say this. In chapters 7 and 8, he deals with the introduction to God or the, the evidence for God, and he's approaching it from a philosophical standpoint. So this would be kind of like C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which, by the way, I, I think you ought to read. Mere Christianity by Lewis is a classic. It introduces you to the concept of how to theoretically know God uh, through philosophy, and this is helpful when you're talking about atheists who have no background in the Bible and are posing false philosophical views of why there can be no God. I think it is important to grasp that. Um, I, don't, I don't know that on the everyday basis, practical concept of things, that that material is as helpful 
as the historical evidence for Jesus. That's one of the reasons I like it more. But I do think it has a place. I think this is a pretty good introduction to the philosophical argument for God. I think that's something you need to read through. And again, I think you ought to go and read Mere Christianity. Though on a daily basis, I don't know you're going to interact with it as much as you will with the evidence for Jesus. So I just throw that out there for what it's worth. I think it's helpful material, but I really enjoy the evidence for Jesus section. Okay, so those 10 points are what I think are the pros of the book. That's why I recommend the book. That's why I think it is a must-read for people. It is so practical in addressing our society, the influences that affect us in a negative way in our lack of development of our mind and challenges that we have in Christianity. Really, really good material. Now, though it has this fantastic, it also has some cons that it brings up, and so I want to point out those cons for just a minute. I picked out five things in particular. There may be some more things that you see as you read through, but five major things you need to be aware of as you go through. Uh, First of all, uh, he's an advocate for Bible classes, uh, the dividing up the church into Bible classes, uh, though he also shows the difficulties and the challenges and the problems that Sunday school is presenting within churches. Okay, so first of all, I want to say I believe Bible classes are a digression from God's pattern. Uh, The Bible calls the church together into a single assembly where there is to be teaching within that single assembly, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where there can be judgment passed on the teaching so that everybody knows what is being taught. The church, when called together, is to assemble together in a single place. This has been a long-running debate. Uh, My father had a debate on this issue back in the early to mid-90s. He's put together a book of debate notes on the issue of what's wrong with Bible classes and how it violates the biblical pattern of worship. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of the debate notes. You can find that in our bookstore. It's on back order right now. We're doing a revision and doing an updated edition right now, but it'll be out shortly. I I would highly encourage you to get that, read that material. Another book that you should consider picking up and reading, you can also find in our bookstore, is called A Weed in the Church by Scott T. Brown. A Weed in the Church by Scott T. Brown. And what Brown is doing is he is recognizing the difficulties that have come along with Sunday school and youth movements. Uh, Brown was for a long time a big advocate of Sunday school and youth movements in particular, and what he began to realize was it was not producing healthy Christians. It was not accomplishing what they had set out to accomplish, and so he began taking a step back and examining all the challenges that were coming along with with Sunday school and youth movements and began asking the question, is this God's desire? Is this part of God's pattern? Why are we failing so greatly in this movement? And he ends up concluding that uh, Sunday school and youth movements are not part of God's design for the church, which I fully agree with. That's what we've been teaching for a long time. But it's interesting to find someone like Scott Brown, who has absolutely no connection with Church of Christ, who is advocating what we have long advocated and recognizing all of the vast problems. He can recognize the problems that Moreland recognizes. And rather than doing what Moreland does and advocating for a reform, He is saying, let's just abandon the practice and get back to the Bible pattern of the family teaching the family and the church teaching the church in a single assembly. So, interesting material there, and that concept comes up a little bit in the book. Uh, Number two, uh, Moreland has 
problems when it comes to the issue of the Holy Spirit, which is not surprising, especially understanding he's coming from a Reformed background. Uh, we're going to disagree with him on the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. On one hand, he's advocating that people need to study. And the reason that the church is in such shambles, according to Moreland, is that people aren't developing their intellectual life and they're relying on uh, movements of the Holy Spirit. There is an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, not enough emphasis on the development of your intellectual mind. While he's good at advocating against you know, a total reliance on the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, his Calvinism demands that he advocate for, for instance, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I believe it's in chapter 2 he has a, a long discussion about the natural man versus the spiritual man of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 in which he argues that the Holy Spirit illuminates us and allows us to understand things that the person without the direct operation of the Holy Spirit cannot understand. That is false doctrine. That is pure Calvinism. And what that does is it tells people, you know what? You can't understand the Bible. You can't develop your intellectual mind. You have to have the Holy Spirit come and work upon you and enlighten you, and without that, you cannot be enlightened. And so what's the purpose of developing my intellectual mind? Moreland recognizes that people are not developing their intellectual mind, but he has not made the connection that that is directly related to his false position on the direct operation of the Holy Spirit that's just spurned by Calvinism. Uh, he, he advocates that we can sense the... Spirit of God dwelling within us and directing us and leading us and speaking to us today. But he he sees that people are relying on that too much and are not developing their life. Well, the fact is, if the Spirit dwells in you and it illuminates you and it gives you God's Word, then there is no need to develop your intellectual life. The fact is, Calvinism and the concept of the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the direct indwelling operation of the Holy Spirit is false doctrine. Um, you can go, I've, I've, I've taught on 1 Corinthians chapter 2 recently, and the concept of the natural man versus the spiritual man. You can go to IndyChurchOfChrist.com and you can listen to my presentation on that. Um, uh, another thing Moreland does on a small scale is he advocates that miracles are still possible today. I would argue that there are no longer miracles taking place because miracles were always connected with a message and according to Jude verse 3 the Word of God was delivered one time for all times and there's thus we no longer need miracles within the New Testament itself, this is kind of a side note, but within the New Testament itself as the New Testament goes along the further you get from Calvary the less frequent you have miracles occurring and the greater emphasis there is on the written word. A great book if you want to discuss the cessation of miracles and the final revealed word of God is called The Final Word by O. Palmer Robertson. Again, that is The Final Word by O. Palmer Robertson. I would really encourage you to pick up a copy of that. Brother Ron Quarter recommended that to me years ago and that has been a fantastic book that I've read a couple times through. Maybe not Maybe not three times, but at least twice. Okay, another area of problems to be aware of when you're reading this is that he advocates for Christians being involved in politics while also recognizing that the state must not be placed under Scripture. Okay, so there's two issues here. He is correct, I believe, in arguing that the, the nation should or the state should not be placed under the rule of Scripture. The reason for that is the New Testament was written for Christians. It was not meant for unbelievers. Uh, the government is required, Romans 13, to do things that Christians are not allowed to do. And so you have this problem. If Christians are to be involved in politics, but 
not place the nation under Scripture, then you're going to have Christians who in one aspect of their life are living under Scripture and in another aspect of their life are living outside of Scripture. That is extremely problematic. Um, Christians are to live within the spiritual realm and need to focus on the church and live by the the New Testament law. The world needs to be governed by the laws that God has established for, for the world. Uh, two books for recommended reading, further development on the subject. Number one is God and Government by Liam Rogers. You will only find that book in our bookstore. We reprinted that a while back. It was a very difficult book to find, really helpful material written on the Christian's relationship to God and government. Again, that's God and Government by Lee Rogers. Another classic work along these lines that has been kept in print ever since it was written in uh, the early 1900s was called Civil Government by David Lipscomb. Again, that is Civil Government by David Lipscomb. If you haven't read Rogers and Lipscomb, I would highly encourage you to read that and try to keep an open mind because this is an emotional subject with a lot of people. The fourth hang-up that he has is he believes in total depravity. Surprise, he's a Calvinist. He believes in total depravity and argues we are still rational beings despite that. And that's really a self-defeating concept. If, if we are totally depraved, that means we are incapable of any good thing. That means we cannot think rationally and discover God or follow God. He has a problem. He's trying to argue that people can think intelligently while also being totally depraved, and that's where he has to insert his concept of a direct operation of the Holy Spirit that allows you to do what you are incapable of doing. And this this is problematic because he's saying we need to use and develop our intellectual life to go out and reason with people about the existence of God, for instance, or giving the evidence of Christ. But if we're talking to people who are totally depraved, they're not going to have the ability to reason logically or to think good thoughts and be converted by use of proper logic. The direct operation of the Holy Spirit takes away any need for human obligation, human faith, uh, human acceptance, and places all the responsibility on God for saving individuals. That's false doctrine, a damnable doctrine, and one you should rightly reject. The fifth and final area that I think is, is somewhat problematic is he makes a distinction between forms and functions. He defines functions as something that God has commanded, but the form being a culturally relative means for fulfilling a function. In other words, if God commands us to do something, we are obligated to do that which is commanded, but we are free to decide based on our culture how we are going to fulfill the command. That's a false concept. God regulates in his word both the form and the function. Let me give an example. He commanded Noah to build an ark. Noah is obligated to obey that command, but he didn't leave the the function, if you will, totally up to Noah. He told Noah, you're going to have to use gopher wood. He gives him the, the dimensions that he is going to have to follow. And so the, f- the function and the forms go hand in hand together. Again, when Moses was commanded to build the tabernacle, that was the function, build the tabernacle. The forms, how to go about doing that, were also regulated. Again, this is where the kind of the rubber meets the road. Whenever Jesus built his church... He was very specific in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, about how to build the church. Be careful 
how you build upon the foundation, which is Christ. You can't lay another foundation. You need to be very careful about how you're building upon that foundation. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is an attack on the social gospel. You can't go around using whatever forms you want to build up the church. On one hand, Moreland can recognize that the social gospel is wrong and it's destructive to the church. He recognizes a number of things that are are bringing down quote-unquote Christianity, but his statements that form doesn't matter but function does matter is problematic and really the mindset that is corrupting uh, people's understanding of the church and uh, Christianity and the Bible. So those are the the hang-ups that you need to be aware of. There may be a couple other things along the way, but those are the main things. Though there are these hang-ups, and there are some problems with the book, I think the good outweighs the bad. There's more meat than there are bones, and this is a really helpful book that college students especially need to read. Young professionals, uh, parents need to read this and be aware of areas that are going to be affecting their children and how to combat them and how to develop the intellectual minds of their children. And congregational teachers really need to think critically about examining their study habits, examining how it is that they're teaching, what it is they're teaching to the congregation, how we are equipping membership within the church to develop their intellectual minds so that they are better prepared to evangelize for the glory of God than what we have been doing in the past. I hope this material is helpful. Again, the books that we referenced and recommended, you can pick up most of those, if not all of them, in our bookstore. You can find copies of Love Your God With All Your Mind in our bookstore. We carry the second edition, and again, we carry that at the cheapest price anywhere on the internet. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe. Share this episode, if you will, with your friends and your family members, and be sure to tune in again next week for another uh, discussion of reading matters in the Been There, Read That podcast. Thanks, have a great week, and God bless. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.